If you're here, you can turn to the book of John as we continue walking through John. We'll have this sermon in John 1, verses 9 to 13. Next week, uh, a student from Bethlehem College and Seminary will be here. Always excited to give students opportunities to preach. Uh, I remember being in seminary and Bible college and thankful uh, when churches would uh, give me the opportunity to preach and and to share God's Word. So next week, uh, Tom Boyer, a third-year seminary student from Bethlehem, will be here, and he'll finish the prologue, so verses 14 to 18. And then I think chapter 1 maybe will move a little bit quicker uh, after that sermon. So this week, just verses 9 through 13, and I'm going to read verse 6 through 13, and then we'll focus in on starting verse 9. So John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was... I lied. I'm going to start in verse 9. I'm going to go back to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people and did not, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, just pause one more time to ask for your help in preaching and in seeing uh, great things in your word, uh, things that would change us. Uh, We prayed this morning uh, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up, that our affections would be raised as high as possible for Jesus. And so I'm asking for your help, that the Spirit would do that within us as we talk about the light who is Christ, that our affections for him, our love for him, our... uh, they would be stirred for Christ and Christ alone. And then you'd help us to see how we would take what we read here and go out and live um, in ways that bring honor to Jesus. So give us your spirit and give us your help. In Christ's name, amen. On Sunday or Saturday morning yesterday, uh, a few of us gathered in this room um, to talk about sharing the gospel with our our neighbors. And TJ mentioned this morning, he talked about our first theological value. We have seven of them, and hopefully uh, by next year, well, next year is not very far away, but very soon, we'll have a sign that we can put up every week, and we'll we'll be able to see these seven theological values laid out. And, And TJ mentioned the first one, which is Christian hedonism, and a lot of people get thrown off by the term hedonism. And DJ did a great job of explaining it. It simply means that we place God at the center of our affections. But the second theological value is that we're gospel-centered. So God is highest in our affections. He is our, what the psalmist calls in Psalm 43, he's our exceeding joy. Uh, That's who God is. And Jesus is God, so Jesus is our exceeding joy. And then our second theological value is we are gospel-centered. And that's a phrase people throw around all the time. Uh, We want to be, we want to preach the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered. We want, uh, you you hear phrases like that everywhere. Uh, And then you ask, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know what they mean, but what we mean uh, by saying we're gospel-centered is the gospel is the message uh, that helps us make sense of all of reality. We approach everything 
every situation through the lens of the gospel. So if I go out, which I'm not going to do this anytime soon, but if I were to go out on a date with somebody uh, before I was married, you know, you go out and you're, you're dating and you're sitting across the, the table from someone and you're really worried about what that person thinks of you. You're trying to make a good impression. Now, you should be worried about those things. You'll never get married. But... As you're sitting there, one of the things the gospel tells you is it tells you who you are in God's eyes, that you are a beloved child, that you're someone who he sent his son to die for and to redeem. And so whether or not that person across the table loves you or thinks you're awesome or thinks you're cool or whatever, God loves you and knows your name. So I approach dating through the lens of the gospel. Or I look at our current political culture. That's a lot of fun. Uh, so we look at that, right? And so how do we evaluate politics? How do we think about uh, judiciary committee? How do we think about all the stuff you see on Fox News and CNN? Well, we think about those things because we're Christians. We're thoughtful about everything. But we look at those things, and the gospel reminds us what? Not only did Jesus die for us, but he rose again, and he's enthroned in the heavens. He's king of kings and lord of lords. So no matter what's going on in American politics or around the world, I have a confidence in, who, in a king who reigns today. So the gospel helps me make sense of and approach things like politics or dating or whatever the case may be. So the gospel is the lens through which we approach everything and see all of reality. But the second thing that being gospel-centered means is it means that it, we believe at this church that the good news of Jesus is the most important message on the planet. There is no more important message than the message of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we want to share that message because we believe it's through Jesus and Jesus alone that people are reconciled to a holy God. That, that there's no way to heaven, there's no way to paradise, there's no way into relationship with the God who created you except through conscious and explicit belief in Jesus. And so we want to tell everybody we can. So Saturday we got in this room, a few of us, and we, uh, we got the TV out and we watched a clip of Oprah and for various reasons, I can explain if you want, uh, that. And then we talked about uh, just how to have gospel conversations because we're a gospel-centered people. So as much as uh, we love sharing the gospel, we know... Uh, that, that when we share the gospel, when we talk about Jesus, who is the light of the world, uh, we share that message that the gospel doesn't simply bring people together, it also divides. It also divides. The good news of Jesus is divisive. Do you know that? It's divisive. This is called gospel math. You, you share Jesus and it divides. It divides the world. Because some people reject the message and other people accept the message. Some people go to one side, some people to the other. So you have those who believe and those who do not. You have believers and unbelievers. And, and in the world, there's only two categories of people. If you want to talk about categories of people, there are two. There are unbelievers and there are believers. So in a Christian worldview, you're either with Jesus or you're not. There's no straddling the fence. Well, I'm kind of with him, but I'm kind of not. You're either with Jesus or you're not with Jesus. There's believer and unbeliever and nowhere in the middle. Believer or unbeliever. There are people who are wrestling with Jesus, but they've either believed or they haven't yet believed. And so we want to preach the gospel, and as we do, it divides people. The light of Christ is a dividing light. 
So when Jesus comes, and we're going to look at the passage, as the true light, the world divides. Some are attracted to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, and others flee from the light. Some people love the light. Some people hate the light. So here's the big idea of this sermon, and I think this passage. When the light of the world comes, when Jesus comes, Christians are those, so who are you? Christians are those who come to the light of Christ and call others to come to the light with them. That's the big idea. Jesus comes, he's the light of the world, and Christians, if you're a Christian, you're someone who's run to the light, embraced the light, and what you want to do is bring everybody you can with you. You run to the light, and you want others to come with you. So that's the big idea. Christians are those who come to the light of Christ and call others to come as well. So that's what John does, by the way. We saw last week John was sent from God, and why did he come? He comes to decrease so that Jesus would do what? Increase, John 3.30. This is what John's doing. He's coming to the light. He came to the light. And now he's wanting to bring everybody he can with him. He wants Jesus to increase. His whole ministry was to point other people to Jesus. He says in verse 23 of chapter 1, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's quoting the Old Testament there. He is announcing the arrival of the king. So what John is, you can understand John is a lamp. You have lamps in your house? John's a lamp. He's not the light, but he's magnifying the light. In fact, John or Jesus calls John a lamp in chapter 5. He was a burning and shining lamp. So he's not the light inside. He's simply the thing that helps the light shine. The lamp serves to magnify the light. John comes to magnify Jesus. He's a magnifier. And so, as John magnifies Jesus, what happens? Read the Gospel. Read all the Gospels. Read the New Testament. Read the Bible. What happens when John starts pointing to Jesus? When his disciples start pointing to Jesus? When other people point to Jesus? What happens to the world? What happens when missionaries go overseas and they start preaching Jesus? What happens when you uh, start talking to your neighbors about Jesus? Some people will come to the light. Some people will embrace Jesus. And other people reject Jesus. The world divides. So what I want to see in this passage is, number one, this is a universal light. It shines on all people. So it's a true and universal light. And number two, it's both repellent and attractant. And thankfully, it's cold. I was going to use the, uh, uh, the illustration of mosquitoes, which are horrible in this state. Uh, but it's cold now, so they're not out. But it'll still work. Uh, the light is both repellent and attractant. Jesus is both repellent and attractant. And then number three, I'm going to talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation. So first, though, I want us to see that this light, who is Jesus, is a universal and true light. It shines on all men. So look at verse 9. Two things to note here about the light. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So what does he mean by true light? What does that mean? And then what does he mean by it gives light to everyone? So let's deal with the true light first. So it's used in different senses. Uh, The true light is in reference to truth versus falsehood. There might be those who claim to know the truth, 
who claim to be a light for humanity but do not point to Jesus or acknowledge biblical truth. So in contrast to false lights, Jesus is the true revelation of God in God's truth. So we're watching uh, this clip of Oprah on Saturday that I put up there. It's from a long time ago. I can't remember. I mean, the hairstyles were amazing back in whatever this was. But um, we're watching this this clip, and Oprah is talking about universal or uh, pluralism, that there are many ways to God, many roads to heaven. You don't necessarily have to believe in Jesus, that it's, that it's wide open. And so she's sitting there, and she's got an audience, and she's got a panel, and they're trying to tell people, just be the best version of yourself, and you'll eventually get to God, whatever you call him or it. If you'll just do this, you'll eventually get there. We're all going to get to the same place. And so they're acting as guides. They're acting as lights. They're trying to point people in the right direction, and yet there's no ex explicit mission of Jesus. Actually, there's a rejection of Jesus is the only way. So there's a lady in the audience who raises her hand, and God bless her soul. She says, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And her and Oprah get in this big argument. It's fascinating to watch. And, uh, but this lady standing for the truth that Jesus said, there is only one way, there is only one way back to the Father, and it's through me. So Jesus comes as the true light who points you to a true revelation of God and God's truth. So that's the first way he's using true light. True ver truth versus falsehood. Second, the light that comes into the world is true in the sense that it's ultimate. John uses this idea later in the book. So if you look at John 6, 32, he says he's true bread. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, he's the true vine. So is he saying that the, so he's referencing bread in the Old Testament. Remember Moses, Israel's in the, in the wilderness and they get manna from heaven. Is he saying, hey, that manna was just pretend. It was plastic and, and fake. It was kind of fake bread. No, that's not what he's saying. He knows good and well that uh, the Israelites ate bread, and they, they weren't eating the plastic bread off of your child's playset. They're eating real, genuine bread. But what he means is, is Jesus is the life-giving bread. Jesus is the ultimate sustainer of life. So here, true light isn't just in reference to falsehood, but here now there's ultimate bread, ultimate truth. Then Israel is called a vine in the Old Testament, and they really are a vine. But Jesus is the ultimate vine. In fact, he is the root to which everyone must be connected. So truth versus falsehood, ultimate light, and ultimate self-disclosure of God. In verse 18, so if you look down at verse 18, what do we read? No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But what does Jesus do? He has made him known. He reveals God to mankind in ways the mountains and rocks and Old Testament laws never could. We know that the, the mountains declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. The Old Testament tells us that. You can look at creation and you see something of God. There, there's an, an inner sense of divinity is what older theologians would call it. You had a, an inner sense of divinity. There's a God who's there. How do we know that there's a God there? You ask my kids, uh, how do you know that God exists? That's the catechism question. And well, how do they answer? They do hand motions. They say, by the world around us. That's number one. The world around us. And uh, they're saying in uh, six-year-old form that the world around us, the, the stars and the planets and the mountains and the rocks and the oceans and the animals and you and the way you're put together, what we see tells us there is a God that's true. The Old Testament laws pointed us towards the reality of a God, but they were a shadow. The reality comes in Christ. He is the ultimate 
self-disclosure of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the true light. So if you go back, that's all the true light, verse 9. What does that mean? He's the true light in the sense that he is the true and faithful and ultimate self-disclosure of God and of God's truth. All others who claim to be the way to the truth, who do not come in Jesus' name or in line with what we read in the Bible, are false alternatives. Jesus is the true and faithful and ultimate self-disclosure of God. But he's also universal. He's the true light. So in him and in him alone we see truth and we see God. But he enlightens everyone who is coming into the world. Now what does that mean? I think this is a universal light and it means he shines on all people without distinction. He doesn't simply come and reveal God to those in Michigan. He doesn't simply come to reveal God to those in Lonsdale or in Kentucky or in Minnesota or the Bolivian jungle or anywhere else. He is, a, uh, he is the disclosure of God of all people. All people from every tribe and tongue find God revealing himself to them in the person and work of his son Jesus. He shines on all people without distinction. He takes no reference to your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status and said, I think I'll come to the powerful and reveal myself to them. I think maybe I'll come to those who are really, really smart and reveal myself to them. I think I'll come to this state or that area or that part of the world and reveal myself only to them. No, he's no respecter of person. He enlightens everyone. Everyone is a universal light shining on all people without distinction. And so, if you look at him being the true light and the universal light, if you want to know God, here's the application. If you want to know who he is, if you want to see the Father, if you want to know the one who created you, you want to know the one who spoke the world into existence, if you'd like to get to know him, where do you look? Where do you turn? Well, there's one way, there's one truth, and there's one way to life. There's one light that shines and reveals the creator to mankind, and that light is none other than Jesus Christ. So here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to do away with vague notions or ideas of God. People love talking about loving God. Yeah, I love God. I, I want, you know, God's great. And we have these vague ideas of God, this God talk that I call it. Just... But there's rarely a mention of Jesus. You ever talk to somebody like that? And they want to tell you how much they love God and, and how much they want to honor Him. And that's, that's good as far as it goes. But they talk about loving God in obscure ways. And you know who you never hear about? Jesus. And I think that's dangerous. Because to be a Christian does indeed mean to love God and follow Him. But only as we come to Him through Jesus Christ. God reveals himself to us in Jesus. We come to God the Father only through Jesus the Son. So don't be satisfied with vague notions of some distant deity. Embrace Jesus. I was meeting with somebody this week, and we were talking about this point. And I said, just make it a habit of talking much about Jesus. Talk about Jesus all the time. Because God reveals himself ultimately and truly, the true light which enlightens everyone, reveals himself ultimately and truly in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So let's do away with vague notions of a distant deity and embrace Christ. Believe in Jesus. In the light of Christ, come to know and see God the Father. 
So when you're talking to someone and they're talking about God and you're listening, you're listening intently and you're wondering what they mean, ask them what they believe about Jesus and whether or not they've believed in Him. Because the way God reveals Himself to us most clearly is in Christ, in Christ alone. So number one is Jesus is the true and ultimate light. Number, that was number one. Number two, the light repels and attracts. So let's talk about repellent and then attractant. So look what he says in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John starts with kind of this wide-angle lens. The, the Word is the maker of all things. We saw that last week, that a lot of people would reject the deity of Jesus, and we said, well, just keep reading, because who is the one who created all things is, and is uncreated? Well, the Word, Jesus himself. He's never been created, and he's the creator of everything. That's the way we talk about God. Uh, and he is self-existent. He has life in himself. That's the way we talk about God. So the Word is God himself. And being God, the creator of the world, he comes into the world. He's the one who fashioned it. Just think about that. Keep it in mind. He comes into the world, the world that he made, to the people he created. He formed out of dust. And what do they do? They reject him. Yet the world did not know him. This, this is what makes grace. You know what makes grace so amazing? We sang the song. It's not that the world is so big. It is a big world, and it's amazing that God could love that many sinful people. But that's not what makes grace so amazing. What grace makes grace so amazing is the world is so bad. Jesus steps into a world, a human society, that stands in rebellion against their Creator. So if you read the word world in John's gospel, it mostly has negative connotations, referring to a, a system, a society that rejects him, and yet Jesus comes anyway, doesn't he? He goes after sinners. He goes after rebels. They don't deserve it, but he comes to seek and to save the lost. So the grace of God is amazing, and we can sing that song, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad, and yet God comes to redeem it in the person of Jesus. So he looks at the world, so that's the wide-angle lens. Now he narrows in. It's not simply that people in general have rejected Jesus. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. They cast him off. I mean, he's a born a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews, and the Jewish people reject the Jewish Messiah. And they didn't just reject him, they killed him. So he comes into the world, and the world in general rejects him. He comes to his own people, the Jewish people, and his own people. Don't simply reject him, but nail him to a tree. So, Jesus comes into the world he created, and he comes to his covenant people, only to find that they don't want anything to do with him. That didn't catch him off guard, right? You think he's surprised? No. He knew, this was amazing to me this week. He knew what was coming. How many times do you not walk into a situation because you know what's, where it's going to go? How many times do you not get into a conversation with somebody because you know where it's going to lead? 
You don't walk into this situation or that situation because it's going to be hard, and so what do we do? We go the other way. I was talking with somebody the week before about doing something that would be difficult. And I said, you, you don't run from difficult things. You lean into them. You don't run from the church. When you're having hard times, you lean into the church. You lean into suffering. You lean into hardship. You lean into it because you, got, you know that God is with you and has something for you. And this is what Jesus does. He looks at the world in general, has rejected him. He looks at his own people. The Jewish people are going to reject him. They're going to nail me to a tree. But I'm not running from it. I'm leaning into it. My face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing's turning me away from it. That's what Jesus does. And we've said it before. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So he comes to go after rebels. He steps into a hard situation in order to bring grace and mercy and forgiveness. And when he does, the light of the world is here. And what happens? It repels. Some reject. Read John's gospel. We're going to see some people simply hate Jesus. They hate the light. And they won't come to it. But, good news, the light also attracts. So it repels and attracts. There are those who come to the light. Notice what happens next, verse 12. So the true light, the, the truth versus falsehood, the ultimate self-disclosure of God shining on all people in the world, every tribe and tongue. He's in the world. The world hates him. His own people reject him. But some people, verse 12, receive him who believed in his name. And what did he do when they believed? He gave the right to become children of God. So there are some who see Jesus and love what they see. Is that not encouragement for evangelism? There are some who will love what they see. There are some who will hear of Jesus, see the light, and embrace it. We don't know who that is. And I'm not walking around trying to figure out who's the best candidate. I'm just sharing the gospel knowing some people will embrace Jesus. Walking around across the street the other day, remember I told you about the Jehovah's Witnesses I shared the gospel with. I didn't look across the street and said, I think that's probably the best candidate to come to Jesus. They're ripe and ready. thought never even entered my mind. I thought, they need Jesus. I'm going to go tell them. And I'm confident that somebody will believe because some people come to the light. So, what does it mean to believe but to receive? So if you're trying to figure out what it means to believe in Jesus, this is a helpful verse. Receive and believe are used synonymously to embrace Him. And the result is stunningly children of God. It's amazing. If you're a child of the Most High God. You're a child of the King, a child of the Creator through Jesus. I love my kids. Love them. They're frustrating, but man, I love them to death. I love sitting on the front, Calvin standing next to me, Caleb standing sometimes over there, sometimes over here. It changes depending on the song. But just love being with them. Going out yesterday, we were helping... Uh, 
helping people clean up, and well, Gina and I and Paul were helping people clean up. Calvin and Caleb found some children, and they played, and it was great just to watch them have fun. I love to see them having fun. We were talking about this the other day. We bought them a motorcycle, which makes me nervous, because uh, I get nervous when they climb on playgrounds, but they're riding motorcycles now, and to watch their smile. She's got a, Gina has a video of when I first bought the motorcycle. They, I told them, they, they thought it was in the back of the truck, and I said, well, you can go out and look in the back of the truck, and I had parked it around the front, and it's a little 50, it's about that high, and I, my legs have to go like this to get on the thing, and so I come riding around the house, just ripping down the road, well, ripping is relative, but I was going down the road, and uh, in the video, Calvin turns, and he looks, and his face lights up, he's like, oh my gosh, look at this thing that we have. I love to see them happy. I love to see them happy. They're my children, and I love them deeply. You're a child of God through Jesus. Do you feel that? He loves you. He knows you're, you're frustrating. You are. You're frustrating because you're sinful, and you do things you shouldn't. You say things you shouldn't. You feel things you shouldn't. Think things you shouldn't. You're frustrating, he loves you like a child. You're a child of God. You believe in Jesus. You come to the light. You receive Christ, and you're a child. First John, it's one of the later things that John writes. So he writes the Gospel of John, and he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation. 1st John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and he just ends. And so we are. So we come to the light when we find that we're adopted children. So in short, when Jesus comes, he reveals God and truth and righteousness. He exposes sin and wickedness and evil. Those who hate the light, who love their sin and don't want it exposed, what do they do? They run from the light. They flee from it. Those who love the light, who hate their sin and love righteousness, what do they do? They run to Jesus. Christians are those who hate their sin, they flee from it, and they run to Jesus. So there are two categories of people on this planet. Those who have received Jesus and those who have rejected Jesus. So you ask anybody, you ask anybody on the planet, are you a Christian? There's three answers they can give you. Yes. No. I don't know. Yes, no, and I don't know. God looks at the heart, and if you ask him, is that person a Christian? There's only two answers he'd give you, because he knows. He would never say, I don't know. He would say either yes or no. There's two categories of people, and the question is, where do you fit? Jesus has come. He's the true light. He enlightens everyone. Some people have rejected. Some people have received. Where are you? Have you run from sin and run to Him? Or are you still stiff-arming Jesus because you love your sin too much? So my prayer is that we would all run to the light. We'd all come to Jesus and be reconciled to God. But here's a question. Is coming to the light something you do in your own power? Is it something you conjure up? If you're just smart enough, go to Harvard, 
get a degree. Maybe you're smart enough. You conjure it up because you're wise in your own eyes. Do you conjure up the, ourselves the ability to love the light and run to it? Well, what does John say? So this is the third point, the sovereign grace of God. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who come to the light have been born of God. That is, God is the source of the new birth. He's the one who has caused them to be born again. So it's, that is, your ethnic background doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you run to the light of Christ. The Jews might have thought their ethnicity meant they were true children. He says it's not got anything to do with your blood your bloodline, your ethnicity. Some assert that they have power in themselves to choose or not choose. It's simply a matter of making the right choice. And there's nothing outside of me that constrains me, nothing inside of me that constrains me one way or the other. But what does John say? He says those who God gave the right to become children, those who believe, those who receive the light, are those who God made alive. So this is Ephesians 2, right? You're dead in your sin. But then what happens in the middle of that glorious passage? God makes you alive. He raises the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised you from the dead. He raises you to life. And so if I ask you, which comes first, your faith or the new birth? What would you say? I'd say the first thing that happens is God makes dead people alive. And these new creations believe in Jesus. Or we might say God opens the eyes of the blind. If we're building off of this idea of light, God opens the, idea, the eyes of the blind so that they see and believe and run to Jesus. So at the end of the day, what John's doing here in verses 12 and 13, is saying you do not boast in your ethnic background. You do not boast in your own strength, your own will, your own intellectual powers. You don't boast in any of that. You boast and hope in a God who raises the dead. You boast and hope in a God who gives eyes to see. You boast and hope in a God who gives you the eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And when you see it, you love what you see. And so you run to Him. So, the true light, the one who is truth, and the one who ultimately shows us, reveals to us the Father, comes into the world. Some people hate it. Some people run to the light. But those who run to the light don't boast in themselves. They boast in a God who opens their eyes. So how do we live in light of it? Three quick points. Number one, come to Jesus. Come to the light. Holding it out right now. I am not the light. John is not the light. Pointing to the light who is Jesus who came to live for you and die for you. Come to Jesus and see the truest and fullest revelation of the one true and living God. Turn from sin and rebellion. Embrace Him as the Savior of your soul. When you do, you get to know God as Abba, Father. 
So come to Jesus. If you're here and you've never done that, I'd love to talk to you more. After service, find me. Uh, I want to talk to you about what it means to believe in Jesus, to become a Christian. Number two, if you've already come to Jesus, be a confident lamp. You ever think of yourself as a lamp? You are. Be a confident lamp. Shine. What's the song? Don't hide your light under something. A bushel. I don't know how to sing it. It's been a long time. And I probably shouldn't sing it. So I won't. But don't, li- don't hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine. Let it shine. I feel like singing. Be like John the Baptist. Point everyone you can to Jesus. That's why we do these Saturday morning gospel conversations. Why? Because we want to be lamps. We want to be helpful lamps. We want to, we want to be lamps that are good and, and magnify Jesus. And we need to figure out how to do that in, in, in conversations. And so how do we have gospel conversations. It's why we're doing what Anna talked about last week or week before when she did the ministry moment. She was up here talking about this event. The gospel comes with a house key, I think is what we're calling it. October 27th. We're asking everybody, hey, on that day, so right now I'm asking you to set that day aside and have somebody in your house. Have them in your house. Feed them. Get to know them. Could be somebody from church. Could be a neighbor. Could be family. I don't care who it is. Have somebody in your house and try to talk to them in some way at some level about Jesus. So there it is, October 27th. Set aside that day, whether it's lunch or breakfast or dinner. I don't care. Have somebody in your house and try to talk to them about Jesus. Why do we do things like that? Because we want to help you make space in your life and prioritize in your life the need to, bear, to build relationships with other people and tell them about Jesus. Now, it may not be they come to your house and, and you go to Ruth and Steve's house and, and Steve smokes this wonderful pork and it's amazing and I'll come that day for your house. And so uh, you go to their house and you may not like, do this whole gospel presentation, but you're simply getting to know people and you're getting in the habit of being hospitable so that you can let the light of Christ shine. So be a lamp. Be a confident lamp. Number three, be a humble worshiper. It's sad that guys in my, you know, the camps I swim in, I swim in what's called Reformed camps, Reformed theology. And you don't have to swim in that camp to be a member of this church, so we don't have to agree with those things, so we know that. But that's the camp I swim in and happily, happily swim in. But it's sad that so many of the guys that swim in that camp are arrogant and prideful. Um, I think it's probably true in any camp, but I see it in my own uh, and it's true of me in the past as well, and <laughs> unfortunately in the present too often. Um, but it should be, if you believe what I just said about God is the one who makes you alive and then you believe, where's your boast? Where's the room for pride? You're not, you didn't make you who you are. God did. Boast in Him. So that doctrine that God makes us alive and then we come to Jesus, that we don't come in our own strength, our own power, we don't conjure it up, should humble us to the dust. Our boast is in Jesus. We do not boast in our ethnicity. We do not boast in our intellectual powers. We do not claim the strength of our free will to save us. We humbly worship a God who causes blind people to see and savor the light of Christ. So if you believe in Jesus... Share the good news of Jesus. 
If you believe in Jesus, humbly worship Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thankful for Jesus who does step into this world. He is the fullest and truest and ultimate revelation of you to mankind. And he reveals you to every people and every tribe without distinction. Unfortunately, we know that some people reject him and we're praying for them today, right now. I'm praying for those who have rejected Christ. I'm praying for those in this room, perhaps, in this town, in the towns represented in this room, uh, the peoples among the nations who continue to stiff-arm Jesus. I'm praying for them that their eyes would be opened. They wouldn't run from Jesus. They would run to Jesus. And we know that that happens when your spirit works to give them eyes to see. So would you open the eyes of millions around us to run to the light of Christ. And when you keep us humble, we are no better than anybody else on this planet. We're sinners. Our only boast is in you. So keep us humble. Such were some of us, but for grace. So keep us humble. In Christ's name, amen.